Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 25th, 2023. As always, if I was to bet on one thing, the press is full of stories about the royal family or the royal families in the world. The New York Times, which is perhaps slightly less sensationist than the rest of the press, reminds us in a piece today that the British aren't the only ones with royal drama. And of course, in the New York, as the New York Times can only do, it looks at lots of other royal families. But of course, the British do royal drama better than anyone else. Uh, there's nobody on the planet, I think, who hasn't heard of Prince Harry's new book, Spare, and very few people who haven't watched the Harry and Meghan show on Netflix. One man who's given a great deal of thought to this um, is the London Times royal correspondent, uh, Valentine Lowe. He has a new book out, Courtiers, Intrigue, Ambition, and the power players behind the House of Windsor. He should know, as I said, he is the London Times royal correspondent. Um, and he's joining us, not from London, but from a hotel room in New York City. Uh, Valentine, why is it that there is this perpetual drama around the British royal family? I mean, I guess guys like you, I'm not sure if you're the cause or the consequence of it, perhaps a little bit of both. What's your read on the world's obsession with the British royals? I think they're like any family, and any family has, has rows, has has explosions, has dramas, dysfunctions. Uh, it's just we write about these. Um, uh, I don't think they have any more than most. When I first started covering the roles uh, for the Times in 2008, it was frankly a pretty dull period in the royal family. There's not much going on. William was going out with Kate and eventually married Kate, and all was sweetness and light. There really wasn't... Uh, any 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 of the psychodrama. Um, so I don't think they have any more than any anyone else. It's just that because they're the family the the nation's spotlight is upon, um, we, we 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 see it and we write about it. So are you suggesting, Valentine, that um, it's the orderiness of, of the royal family, uh, Charles and Edward and William and all the rest of them, uh, uh, Meghan Markle, it seems so ordinary. That's what attracts us because we can relate to our own families. Well, I mean, certainly I think people like, in a way, Charles and Edward and Andrew, in a way, they're pretty ordinary people. And that was the great thing about the Queen. She was, in a sense, a very ordinary person. She, she applied extraordinary dedication to her job, but there, you know, she could have easily have been, she hadn't been a member of the royal family. She could have been a a country, you know, a farmer's wife, that's what she would have loved to have been, and um, she would have been totally unremarkable. Uh, I think, you know, we just love to see a, a drama. People have fantasies, don't they, about what it is uh, like to be a royal, uh, and they're kind of, in a way, they're curiously delighted when those fantasies turn out not to be true, um, because, you know, to be honest, living in a palace is it's not what it's cracked up to be, it really isn't. Uh, once upon a time, um, Valentine, you didn't know the royal family. You're, you're from Shepherd's Bush in West London, not very royal territory. Um, what has most struck you about 
your association with the royals what have what surprised you in terms of your access now what what um didn't you expect what i didn't expect is is how sometimes they 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 kind of don't mind sharing if they if they know you're not going to repeat it um so occasionally occasionally um off the record in other words yeah occasionally you know either before a tour or during a tour they'll have uh they'll have a little kind of drinks party they'll always call, call it a reception that's got a posh palace speak for a drinks party uh and they kind of know you're not going to repeat it that's 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 the ground rules because they point doing these things we're just going to put in the paper the next day um and sometimes on those occasions you know um they can speak quite frankly and you know and William hasn't. I'm not saying William's given away state secrets to me, but you know, I, I've I've spoken to one of, one of these things to William, and he was he was kind of quite frank about his relationship with his father. It was, it was very interesting, and I'm no, I'm not going to repeat what he said. But the frank. No, I'm certainly not going to compromise your career by asking you what he said. <laughs> I, I, so I assume the relationship between you and the Royals is built on trust in the same way as it reflects your new book, Courtiers. It's all about trust is that fair well, i would say the relationship between me and the courtiers is largely built on trust uh, i think the relationship with the royal family uh, is much more hands-off uh, much more at a distance uh, and essentially they don't really trust you except in occasional circumstances um, i mean basically to an extent for, for them for all of them both the royals and and the courtiers as the press, you're you're kind of the enemy, uh, but you're you're a necessary enemy. You're a part of. Well, you're a friendly but... enemy because without the enemy, that you wouldn't exist. Well, exactly. As as the Queen always used to say, you know, I have to be have to be seen to be believed. Um, and <laughs> the, the, there is a sense in which you know the royal family only exists in in, in as much as the royal uh, the people perceive them. Um, uh, it's not like they do vital work behind the scenes that no one appreciates. Their work is to be seen and to be appreciated, and to be a kind of, to be a national figurehead. Um, and we are the, the necessary prism through which that national figurehead is seen. Of course, they have made attempts in recent years to sidestep us. When, when you know, as social media became more important, uh, the royal family tried to communicate directly with the the public you know through social media they set up their own website they used to put stuff on twitter on, on facebook instagram and all that um you know when you do that basically you speak to the fans not the wider public it's only the fans there's some diehard fans who look at that sort of stuff and also you're not expect you're not exposed to any scrutiny and i think the british public the public around the world uh do expect royals to be put under some kind of scrutiny is that one of the reasons why perhaps harry and Meghan megan don't always get a great press you're one of the people who broke uh the fact that the the markle bullying leak was not an evil palace conspiracy clearly um megan and and, and harry aren't particularly popular um, in the palace or among certain people in the palace and amongst courtiers. But do you think they've broken the rules of the game by talking directly 
over social media to their fans to the world? Uh, I, I don't think they've broken the rules of the game by talking directly uh, through social media to their fans. That's that's okay. I mean, obviously they 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 broke the rules by breaking out, but them breaking out, uh, I'm I'm very relaxed about that. Um, I don't think it's a disaster that they left. Uh, I don't think being born into the royal family should be a life sentence. And I do think that the royal family, you know, has to address the question of the spare. What, you know, what, you know, you know, I think Harry exaggerates his position and he, he frankly, he moans a lot, but he does raise a valid, valid issue that, you know, what is the role of this person who is just there to support, who will never get the top job, uh, uh, and has all sorts of constraints put on their life in terms of you know can they can they go off and earn a living, um, uh, can they live an independent life, um, and I think uh, that in these modern times when people are sort of more questioning about what it is to be a royal, uh, I think they have to address that because you know I don't think Harry's going to be the last person to want to do this. I think that you know as it were you can well imagine that. You know, Louis or Charlotte, uh, you know, George's younger siblings, they might think, yeah, well, if I'm not going to be king or queen, in Charlotte's case, um, what's the point? And maybe I can live another sort of life. Um, and I think the royal family has to sort that out. One of the things that occurs to me when I read about the, the latest dramas in the British royal family, the Harry and Meghan drama, is it seems to reflect a broader zeitgeist in in our social media world, uh, issues about anxiety and racial identity. Are the royal family, are these dramas just dragging behind the, the broader popular zeitgeist or are they actually forging any new ground? Uh, I think it's, it's pretty complicated that because, you know, if, if you take the question, the question of, of, of race, you know, Charles is not a racist person. Uh, William is not a racist person. Absolutely no doubt in my mind about that at all. But the overall institution of the palace, the, kind of the, the, the structure, the people who work there, I mean, the whole place is, as one court you put it to be, is, is pretty, pretty pale, male and stale. If you look, if you look at um, the private secretary, which that's, that's the, the, the main courtiers, the chief advisor, the absolute closest person. Uh, Charles has had 10 in his time. Uh, William has had five. Not one of those has been a woman. Um, so I'd say there aren't women in the palace, obviously there are, but you know, the, the top job for those two, uh, never been a woman. Also, you know, the number of um, people from ethnic minorities in the palace, it's, 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 it's pretty poorly represented and they know they have to do better. I mean, the, the, the late queen, she had a, a black aquary a few years back. Uh, Charles has had one or two black people in sort of moderately senior positions, but you know, only moderately. Um, it's, it, it hasn't really moved, moved with the times. And, you know, I think that was reflected in the recent controversy, controversy we saw with um, uh, the late queen's uh, former lady-in-waiting, Lady Susan Hussey. Mm. 
making those remarks uh, to a black uh, charity boss at a, a palace reception. Now, I know Lady Susan Hussey. She is a warm, intelligent, very likable person. She's not racist, but clearly her remarks were indefensible and you know she quite rightly apologized um but i think it kind of reflects uh, a broader fact that the the kind of culture of the palace hasn't really moved on to reflect um the country as a whole um and you also talk about the you know me mental health issues i mean that's 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 another complicated thing because you know, William, William is very aware of all that sort of stuff. I mean, he found, formed a campaign with Kate and with Harry a few years back called Heads Together to just address just that. And they wanted to, to encourage people to, you know, do away, away with what they, what they call the stigma surrounding mental health. So people should be more um, open to talk, talk about it, which is why Meghan's accusation that, you know, when she reached out for help, she was rebuffed, is so extraordinary and hard to believe because um, Harry knew about all this stuff and, you know, as it were, he could have got Meghan help at the very least because, you know, he's in touch with people, he knows he knows who to talk to. So uh, I think, I think probably they're more attuned to mental health than Harry and Meghan give them credit for. Valentine, though, aren't they damned if they do and damned if they don't? They're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be special. So once they have a diverse group of courtiers and the palace reflects the multicultural nature of 21st century Britain, once they focus on, on anxiety and authenticity and all these other buzzwords, what distinguishes them from anyone else? Although, from what you said at the beginning, maybe that's their secret source, that they're not unlike the rest of us. I think you've hit on a really interesting point there because um, over the decades, uh, the royal family has become increasingly approachable. If you think about the Queen, like Queen, she never gave any interviews whatsoever. Charles definitely has given interviews. Uh, and then you go to William's generation and, you know, the number of times I've been on engagement with William uh, and um, he will say, what, what, shall I, what shall I call you? And uh, William says, call me William, it's my name. Uh, so there's, there's this growing informality and approachability. But yet the very existence and justification of the royal family is predicated on, as you say, on their special nature. I remember being uh, on, a, on a trip with William to Australia and we were in Queensland and... We visited the scene of local disaster. It was either floods or fires, I can't remember which, but you know, they'd been having a tough old time there, really, really had. And there, there was some grizzled far, old farmer there waiting to meet William. Uh, and I don't know, but I kind of suspect this, this farmer who I was chatting to didn't, wasn't really a, a particular royalist, um, but, but he was, <laughs> but he was kind of, he was so delighted that William had come all this way to see them and, and to hear about the problems they've been having and you know, how tough their lives had been. Uh, it, it was like, the image that occurred to me at the time was that it was like an Easter Island statue who'd come to visit them. Um, 
Yeah. And he, and he was he he was he was really struck by that. And I thought, how do you? I thought there's a, there's a tension between this notion of them being special, this sort of this kind of uber celebrity who comes to visit you, and if they don't make things better, but you make you feel for a brief while better about yourself. The tension that that sense of specialness and the attempts of the younger generation of the royal family to be to be normal and ordinary and approachable. Uh, and I just wonder if in the long term does that spell problems for the royal family? Because I guess their their existence and their role was easier when we just unquestioningly looked up to them. Yeah, Keynes, of course, famously said in the long run, we're all dead. I'm not sure if that applies to the royal family. It didn't seem as if the queen was ever going to die. Finally, she did. Um, uh, Valentine, uh, let, let's get to the book, uh, Courtiers. Um, you, you know this world. You mentioned uh, that most of the people surrounding the royal family are pale, male, and stale. Is that true of the courtiers? Are they mostly... Uh, sort of AI versions, if you like, of, of Charles or, or Andrew? I, I think um, it very much depends on uh, which household you're talking about. I think the, the younger generation, William's household, is very different. There was um, a very interesting guy uh, who worked for William and Harry. He started off as a press guy. He was a, he was a press person in the Ministry of Defence, uh, and he came to the attention of people uh, when Harry came back from Afghanistan, he helped organise the press on Harry's return. Uh, and people thought he'd done a pretty smart job of that. Uh, and he was approaching, he was their first press officer. His name is Miguel, Miguel Head. Uh, and he came from, you know, very modest background. I mean, his father uh, worked behind um, the counter in a, in a post office. I mean, he definitely was not like old school courtiers. Uh, and his, his in his first interview, um, he was uh, he, he was asked all the normal questions. And then when he got meet, meet Harry and William and someone else present, he was asked in the English Civil War, uh, which side would you have supported? The English Civil War between you know the, the Cavaliers, the Royalist side, and the, the Parliamentarians, the Cromwell side. Which side would you have supported? And he thought for a second. Um, and he said, "Well." Oliver Cromwell, the parliamentarian, obviously, uh, although I don't believe in chopping heads off kings. Uh, and wow. he went away, and he went away, and he thought, oh, God, I've totally messed up. Um, I've given, they, they, they think I'm some raving sort of Republican. I've messed up. I haven't got the job. But, of course, he'd given the right answer, uh, and they liked the answer, and he got the job. Uh, and then later, he... Um, went from the press office to the private office. He became William's private secretary, right? So it could be a different job. Uh, and just before he took the job, he said to William, listen, yeah, I'm delighted I'm going to get this job, but, you know, my I don't have the social background to kind of, you know, schmooze my way with all these posh grand people that I'm meant to be schmoozing my way with. Um, I've yeah, I'm not like my predecessor who was you know, came from and very well connected and so on and so forth. Uh, and William said, don't you worry about that. All that sort of stuff, all the connections, that's for me to do. Your job is to give me advice. Um, so it was a kind of interesting reflection on, on the, the changing nature 
Has it, have, have the courtiers been professionalized? Are they all now uh, doing it as jobs? Are they paid? Is this their full-time occupation to be a courtier, to surround the royal family, to oh, give yeah, them yeah, the look, time, look, to protect it, them from it, the it's media? Very much, it's very much professionalized. Um, uh, and, you know, if you go back to sort of, I guess, the early days of the Queen's reign and before, you know, they were... They were pretty posh people, generally speaking. I mean, there was one private secretary from the early part of her, her reign who was descended from a duke on one side of his family and an earl on the other. Uh, that kind of stuff has, has changed. Um, a lot of you know, some of them come from the military. Um, a lot of them come from the foreign office. That's the kind of well... Is it well paid? I mean, a bit boring as a career. Uh, they can't resist it. Um, so you have to take, you know, if you've got a decent job outside. So I think, for instance, uh, Charles's press guy for a while, uh, a guy called Paddy Harvison, who was previously um, the press person for Manchester United. Oh. Uh, uh, and when he when he left, um, uh, when he left that job, Alex Ferguson, you know, the, the manager of United, said to him. God Almighty, son, you're going to the one place madder than this. Um, but, yeah, you know, and, Hobson, uh, yeah. Alex Ferguson is no is no royalist. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, Paddy definitely had to take a pay cut, and a lot of them have to get have to have to take pay cuts uh, to go to the royal family. But they're kind of seduced by it, and you know, a lot of them, they don't have an ambition to work for the royals. A, a, a lot of the people I spoke, to, I always ask the same question: so How come you ended up here? And they said, oh, I was doing this, you know, I could be working for, you know, the BBC or I was working for Freud's or I was, I was working for the Royal Bank of Scotland and I was, you know, wanted to change and I was registered with a headhunter. And the headhunter, they come to them and say, oh, listen, we've, we've got a client that you, you might be interested in working for, you know, can't say who they are yet, but, you know, it's, it's a big, important client in central London. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, you know, they say, well, actually, it's the royal family. And a lot of people say, what? You know, I've never thought of myself as working for the royal family. But, you know, they're intrigued because, you know, it's also interesting, the idea, gosh, you know, I could be working inside a palace. It's an interesting place. Yeah, but it's the working. firm, Valentine. Uh, is that? I, yeah. I love that well, term. It's, it's it sounds like they're the mafia. Valentine, not Valentine. Just, uh, Valentine, sorry. Uh, um, I'm... Yeah, I'm yeah. Um, I'm turning you into a foreign royal. <laughs> um, yeah, so the fascination that you know, working in a palace is interesting, it's going to be quite glamorous, but also you're at the center of things. You really are. You know, a lot revolves, you get to see. Well, you feel as if you're in, talking in government. Things. I'm yeah. not sure if it's really the center. I mean, the world doesn't change. Let's say, and I know you've got to run uh, Valentine. Um, can this, and you, I'm sure you get asked this all the time and you have an answer, but. Can this family really run and run? We talked about, you know, Keynes arguing in the long run, we all die. Can the royal family survive? I, I mean, it seems to me I'm like Sir Alex Ferguson. I have to admit I'm no great fan of the royal family. But they seem increasingly absurd. At what point do people say enough is enough? Look, I, I don't, you know, I'm no royalist. Um, I don't, I think they don't necessarily survive forever. But there's no sign for the moment. What's interesting is their popularity remains pretty steady. It really does. You know, um, 
poll after poll, year, year, year after year, it bubbles around the same sort of figures. So there's no sign in Britain at the moment that the country is, is tired of them. Um, you know, the, maybe... You'd be out of a job, up. Valentine. If they get tired of them, who could you cover? You could cover uh, footballers, or, or, it, or it'll be it'll be just fine, Andrew. It'll be just fine because I'll be the correspondent for the Royals in exile. Because uh, that'll be another safe problem. People love that. 